0: It's the transitional time between uh, the past, the old, and the future, the new. And uh, it promises a new beginning. It promises a fresh start. It promises an opportunity to make important changes in our lives that will not only potentially affect us, but also the other people that are in our lives. Our marketing-driven culture zeroes in on our desire for self-improvement this time of year as we consider how we look and how we feel and the reality of our lives. And you may notice that already you see a shift, that the food in the grocery flyers has shifted from sugar and cheese to almond milk, quinoa, and salmon. Gym memberships are being emphasized with those special fees being waived this time of year to get you started. You'll notice in some other sales that treadmills and exercise bikes are on sale now instead of deep fryers and bread makers. The shifting time, the reality of our marketing-driven culture is buying into the reality of what many of us Are processing and thinking about this time of year. This is when a time of year when people feel empowered to make the changes that they feel are long overdue in their lives. Now, sadly, statistics show that most people abandon their goals within a few weeks of setting them. Maybe some of you have abandoned your goal already, like I don't know, coming to church on time. That just didn't happen for you That's first Sunday. I don't know, just putting it out there. But most people abandon their goals within the first few weeks. Truth be told, the same reality is evidenced in our lives, uh, in our spiritual lives. We begin the year with a desire that in this year, we're going to pray more. We are going to attend church more regularly. We're going to read the Bible more frequently. We're going to give more generously and we're going to serve more selflessly than we have in the past. We we set these goals, these spiritual goals for our lives because we believe that these are good things and, and there's a nagging reality that they're not exactly what they should be in our lives. So we set these goals to bring this necessary change. But well, the truth is, like our goals to eat better and exercise more take better care of ourselves, our spiritual goals also often fall away in a short time. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating when you desire change, but you don't seem to have the discipline to see it through. It's frustrating. Now, the truth is most of our failure for change is not a result of what we believe. We believe the right things. The problem is valuing what we believe to the point that it changes how we live our lives. Our scripture today, I believe, is an excellent example of what happens when there's a breakdown between what one claims to believe and how they actually live out what they believe in their everyday lives. And so what I want to leave with us this morning as we go through is this simple thought. Our lives will change when we value what we claim to believe. Our lives will change when we value what we claim to believe. Our scripture, Matthew 12, 1 to 8, was read earlier. Thank you, Karen, for doing that this morning. Let's just take a look at our scripture and then... I just have a couple of thoughts I want to share with you at the end. The first is the context. As we're reading Matthew's gospel, we note that opposition to Jesus' ministry grew to the point where his enemies, and included in those enemies are the Pharisees, were actually plotting to kill him. So this is significant. It's, it's already ramped up, and we're only in chapter 12. They're convinced that Jesus' ministry Is not from God he's not who he said he was he's a blasphemer and he's a problem and they want to make the problem go away and so they're ramping up and plotting to kill him as we study history we realize that Pharisees were rule makers they were rule enforcers they were the firstborn in any family we've ever met right rule makers rule enforcers And they saw their responsibility to outline a defined, specific list of rules that would help people successfully follow God's laws. Good intentions. If the rules were followed, they believed that if people followed the rules, that God's approval would then come to them and God's blessing would be upon their lives. So it was important for them to get people to obey the rules so that they could enjoy God's approval and God's blessing. Their rules were often adjusted, even stretched, to meet their conveniences because sometimes rules are difficult to uphold. And so a, a simple example would be that the Bible talks about that on the Sabbath you can only travel a certain distance and the idea being to protect you from working and not getting the rest that you need, so God limited the distance that someone could travel on the Sabbath day. Well, to overcome that law, they would suggest and practice that people leave a personal item at the extremity of that distance, technically now making this their new place of location, and now they could travel that distance all over again. Making it work, for them manipulating it to their advantage. They had good intentions, but the result was legalism and spiritual bondage and hypocrisy. In Exodus chapter 20, where we read about the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments in English is just eight simple words remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy the Pharisees created a list of 39 rules that spelled out how one could do or what one could do and could not do on the Sabbath in order to not violate this sentence that has eight English words in it. 39 rules. Now, most of the Sabbath rules in Jesus' day were were man-made with very little or any direct, scriptural support. Pharisees were a rural group. They would regularly patrol the countryside on the Sabbath to watch out for violators. At the end of chapter 11, Matthew records these significant words of Jesus regarding an rest, which is the focus of Sabbath is rest. And Jesus said these words come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I Will give you rest. Now, that scripture is a whole sermon in itself, but I'm just referencing it because it leads into our scripture for today. Immediately after Jesus says those words, Matthew records this encounter with the Pharisees as they make two accusations in chapter 12 about Jesus and his followers in terms of violating the Sabbath laws. And in the interest of time this morning, we're just going to consider the first one. So what was the accusation? Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain field on the Sabbath. Now grain fields often had paths around the perimeter of the grain field, and these paths served as boundaries or fences, if you will, between the properties, discerning where your property ended, and the other person's began, and vice versa. So these paths were were boundary lines, and also an opportunity for people to be able to cut through the grain fields on the way to where they were going. And so they were walking along these boundaries. We're told that as they're walking along one of these particular boundaries, they're hungry, and they had a dilemma. The dilemma is this. It was not lawful to cook on the Sabbath. If you cooked on the Sabbath, you were breaking the rules. But it was also against the rules to fast on the Sabbath. So you couldn't cook on the Sabbath, but you weren't allowed to fast on the Sabbath. And so the only way around these two rules was you had to prepare things ahead of time. So on the day before the Sabbath, you would prepare the food, and then on the Sabbath, you would eat it without having to prepare it. That was your only option. Well, as we read the story of Jesus and his disciples, they've been ministering with Jesus. They've been, they've been on the move. They weren't able to prepare food in advance of the Sabbath. And so here they are. They find themselves on the Sabbath, likely moving on to their next destination, perhaps heading home or wherever they're going. And they're hungry. And so they just reached out and they picked the grain and they ate it. I mean, for me, I would say, Man, I respect anyone who would do that. Like seriously, who would want to do that anyway, right? You got to be pretty hungry to do that. And so they picked the grain and they ate it. There's no cooking involved. They just picked it and ate it. Now, in Deuteronomy, they're not stealing because in Deuteronomy God clearly instructed that the owners of the grain fields for them not to harvest the fringes of their fields Because that was to be left for the poor and people who were traveling by that they could stop and they could eat what was necessary. And so what they're doing is they're actually availing of the provision that God has outlined for them in his word. My point is they're not breaking any of God's laws by picking the grain or by eating the grain. They're not doing anything wrong. Now, the Pharisees, likely on patrol, observed the disciples picking and eating the grain, and they confronted Jesus. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Unlawful in their eyes and in their rules, because their rules equated peeling the husk from the grain as food preparation. It'd be similar. You can't eat a banana because that requires peeling it, unless you're one of those really unusual people that eat the whole thing. That's food preparation if you're doing it. And that's basically what they're saying. The disciples were not breaking God's laws, but they were breaking the Pharisees' laws and rules regarding the Sabbath, their accusation. Then we see the response the Pharisees took great pride in their knowledge of Scripture. But knowing Scripture and understanding the spirit of the Scripture, the heart of the Scripture, are two very different things. Have you ever met people like that? They can just rhyme off Scriptures like crazy. They can even rhyme off Scripture that asks, is it Christ?" Scripture—it just was on a plaque in a kitchen somewhere. But they thought Scripture, but they don't understand the heart, and they don't understand the spirit of what that Scripture means. And and that's what you have here with these Pharisees. They knew the Scriptures. The problem is not that they don't know the Scripture; they know the Scripture. The problem is, is that there's a breakdown between what they believed and how they were behaving. That's the problem. And so Jesus responded with three biblical examples to show them, guys, let me talk to you about the scripture. If you want to talk to me about scripture, let's talk about scripture. I want to show you in scripture why what you're thinking is off base, that your interpretation of scripture is not in line with God's word. And so Jesus cites very quickly three examples. He uses the example of David that we can find in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was fleeing King Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. David and his companions were hungry. They're starving. It's the Sabbath. And they entered into the house of God, we're told. And they went to the priest. Now, according to the law, 12 loaves of bread... would be be baked and placed in the tabernacle for each Sabbath as an offering to the Lord. The 12 loaves of bread represented the covenant between God and the 12 tribes of Israel, one loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes. And the rule was that the bread could only be eaten by the priests. The Sabbath was carb day for priests. They could only eat it, It could only be eaten by the priests. And so the priests, in response to David and his men being hungry, gave the bread to David and his companions, and they ate it. Now, technically, it was unlawful to eat this bread. But it's interesting that in nowhere in Scripture is David actually condemned for doing this. He's condemned for doing some other things, but he's not condemned to do this because the reality is the intent of God's law, and Jesus makes this clear, God's law is there to serve God's people, not for God's people to serve God's law. Jesus said Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. It's there to serve you, to help you, to take care of of you. And so in God's kingdom, Jesus demonstrates here, and this is difficult sometimes for us to get our heads around, that sometimes when the rules conflict with a human need, Jesus tends to elevate the human need as priority. We see that with the sinful woman as Jesus is at the table and the banquet is ongoing and the sinful woman comes and falls at Jesus' feet and she's acting inappropriately and she's breaking all the rules and she's doing all the wrong things and they're judging her and you know what? They're right. She is sinful. She's broken. She's breaking the rules. She's not doing the right stuff. She doesn't deserve to be there. But what does Jesus do? He shows grace and mercy, and he protects her from them. We see the same with when Jairus' daughter passes away. No good Jew would ever go into a house with a dead person in it because by going in there and associating with death would create such a process of ceremonial cleansing to make them clean again that to go in there would just not make sense for them. It's just too much work involved. And so they would stay away and let the appropriate people deal with it, but they would stay away. And Jesus is on his way to the house and he's told, she's dead. But he goes in there anyway. He doesn't care. Why? Because that little girl and her family is more important in that moment than their ceremonial cleansing laws and rituals. And we see it over and over and over. And so Jesus tells the story of David and and says, haven't you read? In other words, he's saying, you guys must certainly know that one. You know that one. And they said, then there's this second one. The priests, they're required to work every Sabbath. I mean, really, when Sunday, you know, business started to be open on Sunday, it was troubling for me because I feel it affects families, but... People say, you shouldn't have to work on Sunday. And I'm thinking, well, then when would I work? If that's the only day I work, what happens now, right? Priests are required to work every Sabbath. And so Jesus is saying, guys, technically, the priests are breaking the law every single week because they're working on the Sabbath. They're performing acts that will benefit you and your spiritual position with God. They're breaking the law every single week. Yet in the eyes of God, they're innocent because they're serving God and they're meeting the spiritual needs of God's people. And so it's an exception. Once again, the spirit of the law, that there is a spiritual human need and it takes priority over the law. Jesus says, haven't you read the law? Obviously, guys, you understand that priests work on the Sabbath. You know that. And by the way, I want you to know that there is one here who is greater than the temple, who is greater than the rules, is greater than the practices, is greater than the Sabbath itself. My ministry, my message, who I am, is more important than all of these rules. One greater is here. And then his third example, sorry, is Hosea. Chapter six of Hosea, if you read it, you'll see that Israel had wandered from God. And God uses this beautiful picture, painful picture in Hosea of what is happening here. Israel is being compared to an immoral woman who has left her husband to be with other men. And it talks about how God, out of love for her still, despite what she's done, God goes to her to bring her back to him and to restore her. And so this is a, a beautiful metaphor of, for those in a Hosea's day who the nation of Israel, unfaithful to God. Yet they are relying on offering sacrifices, even in the midst of, of, their, of their infidelity, if you will, to God. They still continue to offer up the sacrifices, maybe as a f- way of appeasing their guilt or an attempt to not offend God or, or perhaps just because it's the thing to do and the image of it is right. And God speaks to them in that situation, and he says to them, you know what, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your worship. I don't want your words and your actions. I don't want your offerings. I don't care that you're following the rules. I don't care that you're living out the law. I don't care. I don't want it. And God said to them, what I want most What I want most is to be the priority of your life and for you to show mercy to other people. That's what I want you to do. Make me the priority and show mercy to others. Because this is greater obedience to God than going through the motion of rituals. Now Jesus said to them, if you understood what those words meant. Oh, you know the book of Hosea inside and out. You could probably recite it to me, Jesus is saying. But the problem is, you know the words, you believe the words, but you don't understand the heart of what's happening there. You don't understand because if you did, if for one moment you could grasp what God is saying to Israel there, you would never, ever be able to find yourself In a position where you could accuse the innocent. Once again, they know the scriptures, they know the stories, but there's a disconnect between what they know and believe and how they're living. So, there are many applications I think that we could draw from this text today. But because we begin with our focus on what happens when our actions don't align with what we biblically believe to be true, I believe it's important for us to revisit that idea of understanding the relationships between what we believe, what we value, and how we live our actions in response to that. As you've heard me talk about before, beliefs are what we believe to be true about God. And there are things that we believe to be true about God. We believe that there is one God. We believe that God is good. We believe that God created earth, uh, heavens and the earth. We believe that God has created a plan of redemption. There's a lot of things about God that we believe to be true. We believe things about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. There's things we believe about the world. We believe that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. We, we, we believe that that God so loved the world. We believe that while we are to come out from being like the world, we are go- to go into the world and bring the gospel. So there are things we believe about God. There are things we believe about the Bible. There are things we believe about the world that are really important beliefs that we hold and And some of us hold those in common, and some of us have variants of it, and some of us may not believe the same things at all. But we have beliefs on these things. And our beliefs inform or should inform our values. So let's talk about values. Values are things that we deem to be important. Values are things that we think matter. That we attach worth to. So there are certain things that I value. And, you know, it may be a material thing that I value. Or it may be an emotional thing or a relationship or, or whatever. There are things that we value. I mean, all of you probably have things that you own that no one else dare touch, right? Because you value that and you don't want it broken or, you know, played with. I know, because, like, I still have toys, so I can use the word played with. I got toys for Christmas, by the way. But only toys from the 70s. The good years. These are things we deem to be important, that we attach worth to, like family and re- marriage and relationships and so on. And so we have beliefs and then from our beliefs we, those things are informed, these beliefs inform our values that these are things that, that matter to us, which in turn affects our actions. Because we believe something and we value it, then we act in a certain way in terms of it, the way we express and apply our values in everyday life. And so let's look at some simple examples. I mentioned already that, you know, the standard evangelical conservative theologian would believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Some believe it has to be the King James Version, but that's, that's, that's another whole... No, that's not even a sermon to preach. But point is... You believe that the Bible is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, that it contains truth. You believe that because if you're going to live your life around it, you, you believe it. So you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and because you believe that the Bible is the Word of God and it contains the truth of God, then it matters. And then reading it matters, and understanding it matters, and listening to it being preached matters, and studying it matters, and applying it to your life matters because... If you believe it's the word of God, then you value it. And if you value it, then it begins to shape what you do. Because if the Bible says A, and you value that, then all of a sudden you start living A out in your life because, well, you believe it, you value it, and it affects how you live. Well, the same can be true about other things like giving. You can read the Bible and you can believe that God is an incredibly generous God. That God even in the Old Testament said, don't harvest to the edge of your fields because that belongs to others. It's not for you. I know it belongs to you, but it's not yours, right? Now, this is a whole sermon, how we're plowing and harvesting too close to the edge of the field, That's our problem. We've taken the whole field, and there's nothing left because we've taken it all for ourselves. But we read it, and we say, no, giving and being generous flows from the very heart of God. Our God is a generous God. He calls us to be givers, and giving is not about money. It's about lordship and trust, and we read the Bible, and we believe those things. And because we believe them, then all of a sudden, giving matters, and and the result is we, we are givers. We're generous people. We help. We invest in the kingdom. We don't keep it all for ourselves because we believe that giving is core to the kingdom. Church community. We can believe that it's God's desire that we not just be this ragamuffin, random group of people who happen to show up at the same address every Sunday, but somehow by God's Spirit, He's made a family out of us. We're a community that the Holy Spirit inspires and, and creates community. And we spent a lot of time talking about that in the fall. And so the body of Christ matters. We read in Scripture, we believe that the body matters. We believe that everybody has a part, even though some parts seem way more important than others. They're all important and and all of those things. We believe that, and because we believe it and we value community, we do everything we can to invest in it and build it up and not to break it down and not to hurt people in it and and to meet the needs in it and to create an environment where people feel like, wow, this is a safe place to be. As we believe and it matters and we live like it matters. The same could be said about serving. The same could be said about discipleship and so on and so forth. But the problem, the problem is often our actions don't align with our beliefs. There's a breakdown. And the problem is, is that our beliefs have not translated into values. So we believe the Bible's important and it matters, but it doesn't matter enough to read it. It doesn't matter enough to believe it. It doesn't matter enough to orient my life around it. Or we may look at giving and say, I believe that giving is good and the church should pay for that. By the way, guess who the church is? The church should do this or the church should do that or giving is a good idea, but then it kind of happening, there's a breakdown because, well, it doesn't work for me because, you know, I can't afford it or I my bills won't allow me, you know, and so on. It breaks down. Church community, people matter. Building each other up, investing in each other, holding one another accountable. It matters until something I want becomes more important than the whole, and so on. There's often a Breakdown. When we focus on our beliefs without valuing them, our actions become like the Pharisees. When we focus on what we believe without valuing them, our actions become like the Pharisees. I can't tell you how many times I've been a good Pharisee. I find myself having difficulty accusing them because... I see myself in there so often. I know you don't see yourself there, but but I know you can see me there. Focused on behavior modification without character transformation. It appears holy, but it isn't. It isn't. I guess what I'm trying to communicate in, in the most simplest of terms is this. As we go into 2020, what we believe needs to matter enough that it, re- it affects the way we live and our attitudes. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You see, behavior modification can leave the impression that our hearts are right when in fact they are not. Behavior modification emphasizes what we do. And what others see and gives permission to us to judge those whose behavior is perceived to be different or inappropriate. Behavior modification allows us to gain the approval of others without having to change on the inside. On the contrary, character transformation demonstrates genuine change and growth. Character transformation results in modified behavior. One feeds the other. You can't help but change on the outside when you've been changed on the inside. It's not legalistic, and it's not critical of others. It's just the genuine work of the Spirit inside of us working its way out. Let me tell you, I had an uncle that died at 100, just short of 100, one of the most spiritual human beings that I know that has ever walked the earth. And I remember having a conversation with him, and even though he was old, he was so wise and with it. A Pentecostal from the beginning days of the outpouring. And this is what he said Here's our problem. We are building the church on the gifts of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Spirit. Ooh, that hurts because we want the behavior, we want the externals, we want the activity, but what the Spirit really wants is us to be changed on the inside, flowing out. God has always placed a higher value on the heart and the character of a person than he has on their activities. God knows their heart. I don't know why God does what he does, If I was Samuel, I probably wouldn't have picked David either. I wouldn't have. It just was out of the box. It didn't seem right. If I was God, I certainly wouldn't have picked me. Right? You can say amen to that. You could go back. Come on. Be honest. There's one thing I do know. It was 100% then, but it wouldn't be today. I know that. That's okay. I wouldn't pick me either. I wouldn't pick you either, likely, because so often what I see is the outside, the behavior, my false interpretation of you, but God sees inside of you your flaws and your brokenness, and he sees something incredibly beautiful and filled with potential and amazing and, and with a future. Can't always see that. Can't always see that. God has always placed a higher value on the heart and character of a person and he has in their activities let me tell you something if david was judged solely on his behavior he'd never be the priority in the kingdom of god that he is today it's his heart that allowed him opportunity to be who he was in god's plan not his behavior God places being, who we genuinely are, above the doing and the actions to make ourselves appear spiritual. Because the truth is, when we become who we're supposed to be, as we're becoming who we're supposed to be, the behavior just takes care of itself. Folks, if our beliefs do not shape our values, then what we do and how we act will not be right. And you, I'm sure, are no different than me. There are days that I act in ways that do not align with what I believe. And sometimes I'm being held accountable for it, and sometimes I just get away with it. We don't like it when people hold us accountable when we've been wrong. We just don't like it. But the truth is, there are moments in all of our lives where we miss that opportunity to allow what we believe to shape who we are and how we're acting. I'm going to invite our worship team back. So where do we start? We start where we are. We start where we are. What is it, what is it we truly believe? What is it we believe And if that's what we believe, then we should value it to the point that it changes how we live. If we really believe it, it should matter enough to shape us. Now, more often than not, our problem is not what we believe, but how we value what we believe. I believe that our lives will change when we begin to truly value what we claim to believe by allowing our beliefs to shape how we live. And I would suggest that the lives of others whose behavior we may want to see changed. Hear me. There are people in our lives whose behavior we want to see changed. Mostly it's our wife. I know that. Let's admit it. Or our husband. Stop elbowing. It could be a husband. It could be your children. It could be your neighbor, your cousin, your brother, your sister. There's someone whose behavior you would like to see changed, and for good reason. But I'm going to tell you, a change in you will do more to change their behavior than your attempts to change their behavior. I would suggest that you focus on that throughout the afternoon until it makes sense, because I would unpack it more, but it just came to me now. I would suggest that the lives of others will also change when we begin to value what we claim to believe. Behavior modification without character transformation leads to legalism. Character transformation that leads to behavioral change results in living a kingdom life that honors God and fulfills what Jesus has called us to be. So start where you are. You're here. You're here. And then go from here through this next year from here by really valuing and making a priority what you say you really believe. And I believe that if we do that, we'll come a lot closer to realizing what we desire to be because it will flow more naturally. Would you stand with me this morning? As our worship team leads us, I'm going to invite our our prayer team to come and on this first Sunday in 2020 we want to end our service like we do on most Sundays with an opportunity for any of you here who would like us to pray with you and for you to be able to come and have someone do that and we're going to take a few moments to do that before we wrap up To you as our prayer this morning. As we embark on another year, some things we know, many things we don't know. But what we do know is that you are faithful. What we do know is that you will never leave us or forsake us. Yes. And Lord, our desire as we move forward from this moment is to serve you and live your kingdom and to carry out your work and to honor you in everything in our lives so that our lives are a living testimony of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we live 2020 in anticipation of your second advent. Lord, may we live 2020 understanding that we must work while it is still day because night is coming when we're not going to be able to work any longer. Lord, I pray that as we stand at the beginning of this year that that it will be our desire to, to love you and serve you and, and to give and to, to be selfless like, like we've never been able to do before. We ask that your Holy Spirit would do that work deep within us, translating what we believe. May your Spirit take what we believe and bring so much value to it in our lives that it shapes how we live. Lord, we pray for our families many of us have those in our families who are without you, who, who have turned their backs on you, who have no interest in you. May this be a year Lord God where they, they return to you. They find their way to you. Their lives are changed by you. Lord we just look to you. There is so much that only you can do. And Lord we pray that, that you would do these things in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would be diligent and faithful to be who you call us to be, to do what you've called us to do, to honor you in all that we are, everything that we put our hands to. Lord, I pray for each and every one in this room, all of us with our struggles and our challenges, all of us in those moments reflecting on our lives, realizing that we're we fall short of of what we should be in you and, and what you expect of us. And sometimes we can get so paralyzed with the guilt and of that, that that we can't move forward. But God, I pray that we would find freedom in you today, that yes, change needs to happen, but by your spirit, it can happen. And we give our lives to you afresh this morning. Watch over and be with us as we go. And should you, tarry, may you bring us together next Sunday to experience your presence, to to be empowered by your spirit, to be challenged, and to leave ready to live once again your kingdom on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you
1: for being.